It's been said that anarchy, the breakdown of law and order, and collapse of government authority is only a temporary or transitionary state because eventually some force will come in and fill the vacuum of authority in its place, whether it's socialism, communism, or fascism. But ultimately, what takes over is collectivism. Today we'll further examine collectivism in this episode of Anarchy in America with Christian Gomez. The Oxford English Dictionary 2nd Edition defines collectivism as the socialistic theory of the collective ownership or control of all the means of production and especially of the land by the whole community or state, i.e. the people, collectively for the benefit of the people as a whole. The word first appeared in the May 8th 1880 issue of the Saturday Review of Politics, Literature, Science, and Art, which said, quote, by collectivism is meant that everything is to be done and managed by a society. Railways, mines, forests, and even the soil are to be worked by associations. Every industry is to be in the hands of some association, and every workman is to find in his association the means not only of subsistence, but of wealth. Joining us today to discuss this idea of collectivism, which underpins communism, Nazism, and a whole host of isms, is no stranger to the John Birch Society, Mr. G. Edward Griffin, the founder of both the Red Pill Expo and of Freedom Force International. Thank you for being with us today, Mr. Griffin. Well, thanks for inviting me, Christian. Everyone has heard of communism, Marxism, Leninism, socialism, fascism, and President Trump has even used the phrase globalism a lot. But all of these words, uh, all these isms, you would say that they are different facets of collectivism, right? That's absolutely correct. Yes, I went through the same uh, awakening process, I suppose, that a lot of people have gone through. I came, I came through the university system, the, the uh, public school system, uh, hearing all these words about socialism, communism, fascism, Nazism, you know, now we have progressivism, modernism, we got neo neoconservative. I mean, we've got all these words, and who knows what they mean? Everybody has their internal meaning, uh, but they it's pretty hard to find agreement among more than three people as to what any one of them mean. You can go to different dictionaries, different encyclopedias, and it just goes on and on and on. And uh, it was always a sort of of uh, a great disappointment and confusion to me in the early days when I was trying to figure all this out, you know. And finally it dawned on me after I really delved into the literature of some of the great uh, the great collectivists, that's really what the word is, of history. And by that I'm talking about not only Karl Marx, not only Lenin, not only Stalin, but we switch over and we're on the other side, supposedly. We're talking about Adolf Hitler and Mussolini. We find out that fascism and communism and Nazism really are essentially the same. And this came as a surprise to me. I read Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto and Das Kapital and read all the voluminous works of Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. Then I got over to Mao Zedong and Adolf Hitler and Mussolini. And I think these guys are all saying exactly the same thing, what, which exactly? is collectivism. collectivism. Yeah. So once you peel off those labels of socialism, communism, etc., and you look at the actual ideology itself, it is you indistinguishable. You can read large passages from uh, from Mein Kampf, and if you didn't know where it came from, you wouldn't know who the author was. Or well, maybe you would by the style of writing, but certainly not by the ideas. So that's what caused me in the early days back in, the, I would say, starting in the mid-60s, to start to 
take notes as to what were these these things, these ideas, these um, uh, these center points where they all agreed on, and I, it was pretty easy to find out. I, to my knowledge, nobody had really tried to do that before. If they had, I hadn't. I still haven't come across the, their works on it. But it, it's an essential essential task, I think, uh, Christian, because once you identify what these things are, and for example. We're talking about what's what's the origin of, of rights? Where do they come from? That's an issue. As you look at at Marx and Engels and Hitler and Mussolini, and you look at the United Nations charters and documents, and you look at the Republican Party, and you look at the Democrat Party, and you, no matter where you look, they all have a position on what is the origin of rights. And lo and behold, they all agree. They all agree that rights come from the state. Well... And therefore, if that is true, then the state has the right to take them away. And this is a horrible situation when you realize that this is one of those fundamental issues. Now, when our nation was formed, that was not the case. They believed that the rights were God-given rights. I think that's how they, they came right out and said it. And there were people, of course, even in those days who said, well, I don't know about this God thing, but I do know that my rights come with me. I am a, I'm a human being and I've got rights as a human, don't I? Well, you could argue it would yes or no, but everybody wants that to be the case. And that was the, th the theme on which the United States was based, is that the individual had rights and that the purpose of the state, as stated right in the Declaration of Independence, the purpose of the state is to guard those rights, to safeguard those rights. So anyway, that's just one of many issues. But I finally discovered that there was no difference between communism and Nazism, fascism and all these other things. And, and um, you know progressivism now and all these things it, it really simplified things and i think when people come to that awareness it, it simplifies an understanding that in many cases we're given a choice of having to choose between two people who believe exactly the same thing but argue like heck against each other on little fine, fine details and we have we have to choose what do you want to be a nazi or a communist you know well wait a minute i don't want to be either one <laughs> but that's not a choice you got what are you republican or a democrat are you going to vote for this you're going to vote for trump or you're going to vote for biden you know and I, I suppose cases, we get a choice in as to who can take away our rights and yeah. then to what extent they they do so yeah, which one? Which one do you want to be your your master? Oppressor A or oppressor B? <laughs> exactly. So once you get clear on this thing called collectivism, that that is the, in my view at least, it is the center point of understanding why our freedoms are practically gone and have been going, you know, regularly, methodically, incrementally for over a hundred years, is because our our leadership positions in, in government and in education and in media and, and everywhere, all of the people who are setting the pace and creating policy and, and teaching and, and verifying have all adopted this principle of collectivism, which is basically the idea that the group is more important than the individual and that the individual must be sacrificed if necessary for the greater good of the greater number. And there you have it. I, they taught that to me in school. You probably got it, too, in that very way, various ways. And we all come out of school thinking that's a good idea. I mean, after all, the greater good sounds good, you know, and, and the greater number. What's wrong with that? Isn't that democracy? And, of course, once you start asking those questions, you're, you're into a, a very interesting uh, journey. And in my case, that journey led me to realize that just about everything I had been led to believe as a young person was totally 180 degrees wrong.
Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned uh, the Nazism, the fascism and, and globalism, socialism, communism, all these isms. We've all heard these terms. How come we've heard of these terms, but yet collectivism, which is, you know, as I mentioned before, it's in the it's in the dictionary. I defined it. It's been around since 1880, as I cited that example. But how come most Americans and most people in general haven't heard of that term? Why don't you think the media, you know, uses the phrase collectivist or collectivism when describing, you know, when calling a duck a duck, so to speak? Well, I, I think we have to answer that question by uh, asking first, at what level? I think at the very, well, first of all, switch it around, at the bottom level, the, the writers, the authors, the people who are, uh, you know, doing most of the work are just copying each other. You know, you, you read this guy, so that's good, I'll quote him. Uh, well, that's a good idea, and it becomes your idea. I do that. I think we all do that. We borrow ideas. We steal ideas without wanting to steal an idea. Often that we, it's good. We adopt it. So they read something, and say, well, that's good, and they start using those words. And collectivism disappeared uh, from the um, English vocabulary, I think about, about I'm going to guess it's about World War One, along in there. It was interesting to me that the books that I found, the older books that predated World War One, spoke about collectivism and its opposite, which is individualism. They spoke about them in clear terms. There was no hesitancy, and apparently all the, the educated people who were reading those books at that time understood what they meant. But after that date, and after Wilson, let's just put it there, when Colonel Edward Mandel House moved into the White House and started to determine foreign policy and everything else through the voice of Wilson. And after we got the Council on Foreign Relations created and fully running, and then we got all the Rockefeller money and the, uh, everything going into changing the educational system. But from that point forward, that word just was wiped away. Now, the authors and so forth at the, the bottom level didn't do that, but somebody at the top did. And they did so, I believe, of course, the there's no written record of why they did it, but it's pretty obvious. I think they did so because the words themselves, collectivism and individualism, are self-explanatory. They really describe to a high degree what it's all about, whereas none of the other words really do that. So would you say so, that the debate has shifted from collectivism versus individualism to now debating what form of collectivism to choose from? That's exactly what happened. And you can't do that if you've got words that really mean something. If you said, if you kept insisting that we're going to talk about what side are you on, collectivism or individualism, I think most people, if they thought it through, would, would migrate over to the individualism side. But if you say, which side are you on, communism or Nazism or fascism? Well, they don't know because they have to, well, what do you mean by that? And of course, the people who are advocating either of those positions make their uh, make their ideology sound good. And I mean, they, they use all kinds of, of uh, wonderful phrases, which are not very precisely defined. But mostly, mostly, if you think about it, people adopt ideologies today not because they're for something, but because they're against something. Just in our political system, how many people vote for a candidate as compared to those? who vote against the other candidate. That's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. I, I really don't like this guy, but I hate the other guy, so I'm going to vote for the, the lesser of two evils. So that's, the lesser of two evils doesn't come into play if you're using words like collectivism versus individualism. It's either this or it's that. They're not both evil. It's not the lesser of two evils. It's well, the, the lesser of two of evils other. is still evil. <laughs> you're right. Of course it is. And, uh, and the idea of giving you a choice between um, uh, 
running off the cliff or, or strolling off the cliff is, is kind of a, a non-choice a, a non as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So, so to what degree would you say that the United States is a collectivist state right now? Right now? Especially with Boy. all the COVID stuff going on. Yeah, I, I'm tempted to say 100%, but I... That would sound extreme. I'll go to 95%. No, right now, a, people... There's a video on YouTube, I think from maybe uh, 20 years ago or so, where you're saying it's probably 80% now and that we're headed yeah. towards 85 and so forth. So here we are at yeah. uh, 90 plus percent, let's say, if, if North say Korea so. would be 100% as an example. Yes, it, yeah, North Korea would be a good benchmark for the totality of it all. Uh, yeah, with North Korea as 100%, I'm going to say the United States is probably about 90 Seven point four or something to make it sound like I know what I'm. Then we're going to get to fractions here. <laughs> yeah, get to the fractions. It's far, far advanced. Anything, I mean, one percent is unacceptable because I think collectivism is kind of like pregnancy. I mean, once it starts, it goes to full term. I don't think there's ever been a case uh, uh, that I'm aware of where a society has gone collectivist without going to full term and just so, collapsing. Uh, because pardon my pun here for a moment, but how can we, what can we do, what can the American people do to abort uh, this move towards collectivism and go back to individualism? We have to start by creating a, a much bigger understanding than we have in the past among people who don't even care. This is hard when they don't care. They don't think it's important to understand these issues. They think, oh, it's all crooked anyway. You know, they don't think they can do anything about it. And you got to go along to get along. We have to reach even those people because they're the ones who could line up and support. In fact, they are supporting. Look at the people walking around with masks on. They don't know what the heck that means. They've been told that if they wear a mask, they're being a good citizen because they're helping to save lives. So they're good people. But my gosh, they see somebody take a mask off and they'll beat up on them. You know, in the grocery store, we've seen pictures of that. That's right. And so, Especially on social media. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I go back to this question. We have to reach even those people that, that are easily fooled and are, uh, are fooled. So we start with that. That's why education, as dull as that sounds, is so blasted important in anything we do. But beyond that, as you well know, Christian, you've got to have that leadership component. You have to have a strategy, a plan. You've got to know exactly what's happening, who you can trust and who you can't. You have to have funding. You have to have communications. You have to have uh, uh, oh, so many different things going on. So that's where you and I and people in organizations are trying to build this kind of amalgam of leadership. Absolutely. And lastly, uh, those that are, that are watching and, and that are interested, where could they go to learn more about your work at the Red Pill Expo and Freedom Force International? Well, thank you for that question. Well, we got we have a lot of websites, probably too many. Uh, but anyway, the first place to go, I would say right now, is to the website of Red Pill University. That's kind of the hub of everything. Everything that happens in the other uh, peripheral organizations is reported and keyed in through redpilluniversity.org. I spend probably 60 to 70 or maybe more percent of my time developing material for Red Pill University. Red Pill University is what sponsors the Red Pill Expo. And oh, by the way, I'll mention, we just decided the other day, our next Red Pill Expo is now scheduled. It's going to be held on June 4th, 5th, and 6th in uh, Rapid City, South Dakota. And that's about 
that's about a 25 or 30 minute drive to Mount Rushmore, uh, Mount Rushmore, it is a, you know, a great symbol of American history, a couple of presidents up there on the cliff and all that. So uh, we decided to do it because South Dakota is this, one of the states that still has some sanity behind it. They're not uh, masking everybody up. And one of the least up. collectivist states at the, the moment. The least collectivist states, yeah. So we're going to go there. And uh, already people are saying, oh, this is wonderful. You know, our last one was held on um, on Jekyll Island. We went right back to the scene of the crime. And uh, it was our best event yet. We had uh, more people there. I guess we had about 750 people show up. And we didn't know what was going to happen. People were afraid to travel, right? But they came. And our theme there was damn the torpedoes and full speed ahead. We're not going to say, oh, I wonder what's going to happen. Oh, golly, gee, maybe maybe it'll be difficult. We said, no, we're going. And so we went. And that's what, that's the kind of attitude you have to have. Don't wait around to see how it's going to turn out. Because if you wait to see how it's going to turn out, it's not going to turn out well. You have to be part of the, of the force that makes it turn out a certain way. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Griffin. We'll... We'll be glad to have you on again in the future. Take care and God bless. Christian, thank you so much for having me. Thank you Bye. so much. The march toward collectivism is the enemy of our time, as Geoberg Griffin expertly explained, and it must be stopped. If you haven't already done so, consider becoming a member of the John Birch Society to combat the tyranny of collectivism. Until next week, take care and God bless.